When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, everybody. It's Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Welcome to another episode. Hope you're doing well out there. Hope you're staying healthy, getting ready to get out and about as we're hearing that more states are going to open up here pretty soon. I know here in Illinois, we're hearing that it's likely that June 1st, there's going to be some restrictions lifted. So I hope anyone who's dealing with this stuff is doing okay and keeping themselves busy and hopefully listening to this podcast is helping you do that because I know we've really increased our content since the beginning of April where we're doing five episodes a week you know up from you know one to three that we usually do so hopefully you're enjoying it I know I enjoy doing it and I appreciate all the feedback you guys send me my next guest big fan of their podcast the podcast is metal up your podcast you can find them on metalupyourpodcast.com. You can find them on all podcast platforms. I'd like to welcome in from Nashville, Tennessee, the co-host, Clint Wells. What's going on, man? How you doing, Clint? Hey, Jay. Doing great. Doing great. Nice to be here, and thanks for the invitation, and uh, I'm looking forward to the combo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, for, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time. We always start... The podcast, every time we have a new guest, the same way, with the same question, and that is the essence of our podcast, which is just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Well, uh, you know, I don't want to sound pretentious, but for me, there's just so many, you know, I was thinking about this today in anticipation of coming on the show, and and, uh when I, th- when I think back, well, first of all, it feels like forever ago. I feel like, I mean, I'm 36, but I feel ancient at this point. Um, there's so many things that come to mind, and, and I was born in 1983, and so MTV was in full swing by 1990. Uh, between 7 and 13, MTV was, was still pretty, pretty bitchin'. So a lot of my hooks have, are, are sort of tied to MTV culture, and... I think that's been a really important part of of how I've progressed through my love of music. And for those of your listeners who don't know, I'm a professional musician in Nashville, a touring guitar player, a session guitar player, and a songwriter. So I think about this all the time. So what MTV Culture did for me is it allowed me to see something like Prince right next to something like Metallica that would then be right next to Madonna, that would then be next to Tom Petty. And uh, I just never grew up with any sort of tribal allegiance to any genre of music. It just all felt 
like one big awesome thing. So, uh, you know, the, the the bands that were my first loves would would easily be early uh, early '90s iterations of like Metallica. Um, I don't really remember seeing the one video, which would have been '88, '89, but I sure as hell remember Inner Sandman. And so, but also Pearl Jam's first record, a lot of the grunge stuff in the early '90s, uh, facelift by Alice in Chains. And then when I was 13, uh, I saw Kiss. Kiss was my first concert. They were on their reunion tour. And uh, that's why I play guitar. No doubt about it. That's the reason I picked up the guitar. Um, But it starts really with just whatever was on MTV in the late 80s and early 90s. You mentioned MTV. MTV was huge for me, too, as well, growing up. I'm about a decade older than you. I'm 45. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I came along, in, you know, in the early 80s where the music was a lot more raw. And it was, it was there was no frills to it. It was based, you know, when you think of the bands like the new wave of British heavy metal movement, or you think of early Maiden, and you think of bands like Y&T and Overkill and stuff like that, or Raven even, Mm-hmm. You, there's like three periods of the 80s that I kind of grew up with. Like you had the raw period and then you had the beginning of the glam movement. And then towards the end, it kind of became a parody of itself. Like where bands were begin, you know, getting signed by what they looked like instead of what they sounded like. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember going and reading the circus magazines or the hip parader magazines and, you know, knowing the bands because I would hear them on the local rock radio station in the early part of the 80s and the mid part of the 80s but towards the end and in the early 90s I was seeing pictures of bands I'm like I've never never heard of these guys but they had the look right. they had the look that was popular then and then you know the, the the genre changed in like 93 92 94 you know that whole era right there mm-hmm. and Metallica was a big part of that change you know Metallica you know I've often said probably did more to quote unquote kill glam metal in the 80s than the grunge movement did yeah i, th- I think know? that uh yeah nirvana gets all the credit when really metallica has is a big pillar of that but also i think guns and roses destroyed that shit too um they maybe looked a little bit that way like in the welcome to the jungle video i guess but musically appetite for destruction is probably the first death nail of what seemed like schlocky 80s vapid hair metal that was just about getting laid um you know, Guns N' Roses like was the first album in a while that just felt super dangerous, but was also really mainstream. And there was all sorts of underground stuff that felt really dangerous. But uh, but yeah, I, I agree. Metallica, I think, was a part of it too. And Metallica is one of the few bands that that bridged both decades. A few bands kind of survived that. You know, Aerosmith did, um, and then of course Guns kind of did. I mean, the Use Your Illusion records were huge, but. But yeah, it, it all changed, and and of course the grunge stuff, which kind of were, were the big heroes for slaying the hair metal dragon or whatever, that didn't last very long either. You know, Th- those bands don't exist anymore, really, except for Pearl Jam. So it all it all kind of cycles through, you know. Yeah, I I just when I think of Metallica, and you mentioned you know Guns and Roses, which I think is an excellent point, but I still think Guns and Roses really didn't move the needle away from you know the glam movement they be, they were more popular and you know i think that they had that swagger similar to what van halen had in the in the late 70s mm-hmm. but i just think that undercurrent of you know when master of puppets was released in 86 
And then I remember when that video for one came out. I was in eighth grade when that video came out. And I remember the people that were wearing poison shirts the next week they were wearing Metallica shirts. Right. And I don't remember, you know, I I don't remember that change with Guns N' Roses. I think people like Guns N' Roses, but they also liked Poison. They liked all the other bands too that were around. But I think Metallica was just so in your face and so different that it really, you know, it was a long coming change. You know, it was a long, it was a long time coming. And, and I think that started when the impact of Master of Puppets in 1986, obviously they had the, the albums before that too, but that was really when people really started to take notice of this underground movement that was happening. And I think it came to fruition with the And Justice for All and beyond. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, when you put it that way, that makes a lot of sense. But the, the danger of Night Train or Rocket Queen or Mr. Brownstone feels more in the same family of like what maybe felt dangerous about Motley Crue or something. Whereas Harvester of Sorrow and Blackened and One and Dyer's Eve does kind of feel like a whole different thing. And I, I think the reason you started seeing those shirts, you know, was the credit really, it isn't that Metallica was making different music, which they were, but that's really MTV. That was the power of MTV because I mean, I think the biggest tour they did on puppets was opening for Ozzy. So they were still not as well known, you know, what, what MTV did is just like every kid that would be wearing a poison shirt finally saw it, you know, finally got to see Metallica and that the video was perfect because it, it completely subverted everything you expected in a video at that time. It was really long. It had all this dialogue from the film. It was black and white and dark and about a guy who had his fucking arms and legs blown off. And then some of the best hookiest thrash progressive metal ever, you know? So it was a really kind of great storm, and then I think really set them up for what would happen with MTV and the Black Album a couple of years later, for sure, which just took the whole world, you know. Yeah, and, and that's really what I kind of want to dive into today with Metallica, is that evolution. You know, right. when you think of Kill 'Em All, and you move forward to Ride the Lightning, and Master Puppets into And Justice for All, there really wasn't anywhere left for them to go in terms of what they were currently doing, especially after Injustice. Injustice was such an angry record because of what happened with Cliff, obviously. And I think they were still in the mourning process when they did that album. And then they came out, they got Bob Rock to produce the Black album. It completely changed, I wouldn't say completely changed, but it changed their sound and it became more mainstream because it had a hook. It was more in that style where it pulled you in or as the stuff previous to that it was deep subjects deep lyrics you know bass guitars you know different arrangements and it wasn't for everybody right it wasn't you know it wasn't like everybody would enjoy something like that because people are prone to know what they like or like what they like what they like and continue to do that and I think Everybody was intrigued by Metallica prior to the Black Album. When those songs came out, like Enter Sandman, The Unforgiven, it gave the mainstream music fan, the music consumer, a reason to then grab onto Metallica because they were on MTV. Their videos were there. They were huge. They were on these huge tours. And it kind of gave those people the okay to say, hey, I can like Metallica because they sound like this now. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's so much that that goes into that. Um, you know, getting Bob Rock, who, who was off the heels of, I guess, Doctor Feelgood, and um, 
they, they'd kind of wanted to move that way a little bit with Justice. That they originally wanted Mike Klink to produce Justice, who had just done Appetite for Destruction. Um, so I think they were already thinking about that a little bit in terms of Sonics. But but yeah, Bob Rock was the perfect guy for for what they ended up doing. And I've seen a few interviews with the boys where they talk about really touring Justice was when they kind of saw how the long songs were just bumming everybody out in terms of like people were just getting tired, you know, physically from listening to nine minute progressive metal songs and that people just were beginning to look bored in the crowd. And that was like one of the pieces. Of course, also, it's hard to imagine them doing Injustice for All Part Two. Those songs are so great. They they did it, you know, and I could Metallica has always been a band that really seems artistically driven to move on to something next, something more challenging or different they've always really done that you know the level up from kill em all to ride the lightning is incredible to me in terms of songwriting um i love the songs on kill em all and and all these years later when they play something like hit the lights live or the four horsemen live or whiplash or and they you know they play seek and destroy it almost every show it's amazing to see how great those songs were and it's really the first batch of little bay area thrash metal tunes they could just dream up you know and all these years later those songs are still great but the jump from anything on Kill 'Em All, in my opinion, to Fade to Black and For Whom the Bell Tolls and Creeping Death is just incredible. And then every record, they just started to level up. I feel like Puppets is similar to Lightning, but it's tighter and it sounds better. And then Justice is its own kind of little ecosystem, right? It's angry, it's political, it's long, it's thrash, but it's also progressive. Of course, the sonic issues with the album, is, is there's a sort of sonic identity with the album. It doesn't have a lot of bass on it. And then the Black Album, to me, sort of looking back in hindsight, it just makes sense. Yeah, they went shorter songs, a, a more broad producer, uh, bigger hooks. And then that, of course, gave way to the Load and Reload era, which is a, a divisive era in Metallica's canon. I, it's one of my favorites, probably because of my age at the time. But that ran into its logical conclusion, too. And then they tried something different with St. Anger, and, you know, the, the story kind of goes on and on, but... Black Album is an interesting focal point because it's where a lot of people of a certain age really sort of came online with them. And it and it's really where a lot of people who were hip to them before got really bummed out. And people to this day, the the, the disappointment that people felt uh, with the Black Album reverberates today. I mean, we, we engage a lot of different kinds of Metallica fans with our podcast, and there are still people who just absolutely cannot stand the uh, the Bob Rock era, for sure. That comes a lot, though, with a lot of artists, right? I think oh, yeah. rock bands in general don't like it when their favorite artists evolve. They no. like their they like their favorite artists to remain in the same box and not stray from what they know and what they like and that's that's disappointing because I always like the evolution of the artist. I Me like too. when an artist goes out on a limb and, and does something different and it may work, it may not, but that's the exciting part about listening to the music. And you know, I I just wrapped up these Metallica polls or they're about to wrap up today and you're right. You see the disdain for anything beyond and justice for all by a lot of Metallica fans. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why you can't enjoy both. I, I don't know why you can't say, Hey, you know, this is a different period. I mean, every band has evolved except for maybe ACDC. Right. I mean, even, I mean, even Led Zeppelin from Led Zeppelin one to in through the outdoor is a completely different band. And, and as an artist, I don't know if fans appreciate the fact that, an artist has to keep trying something new or else they get bored. Metallica couldn't make the same album again as Injustice for All. They couldn't keep doing it like you said. 
Yeah, and it it's just part of it. It's you know, people were upset when the Beatles quit playing clubs in Germany. They were upset when Bob Dylan went quote unquote electric. Um, they, they, I, I don't know. I, I I try to empathize with it. Like I try to get where they're coming from because a really big part of who they are feels wrapped up in a, a particular era of a certain band. And then there's a feeling of it's very dramatic, but a feeling of betrayal when they evolve or change or whatever where take their makeup off or wear leather pants. Who knows what it is? It's something for any band. But I think, uh, I think one of the ways I escaped that is because of MTV. Like I was trying to say before, it's like, I just never had any place to put that. Like, Oh, these, these are, this is my tribe. They look and act like this always. And if they don't do this, then, then, then I'm off the team or something. Like when St. Anger came out for me, I did not understand that record at all. I listened to it once or twice, and then I took it out, and I don't think I revisited it for over 10 years, till the podcast. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, it felt like wherever they were going, I couldn't go with them. But that, that's as dramatic as it got for me. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, um, I don't, I don't remember being tempted to like burn the rest of their albums or talk shit or go on message boards and get angry. I just got off the ride for a minute, you know? Uh, and we have, to be fair, we have had a lot of listeners that, have talked about either the through, via the virtues of the podcast pontificating about load and reload or the black album. People have come around and given it another shot and really enjoyed it. Um, and then there are people who are just, it's not for them, but they're not the sort of purest, like first four thrash albums only. Um, but I think other than ACDC, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think about that all the time. That's like the only band that still kind of makes the same record over and over, but it's so good. It's just undeniable. Any other band that's interesting to me, uh, Van Halen, Kiss, all of those, the Beatles, Dylan, Zappa, Led Zeppelin, you mentioned, of course, Metallica, U2. Um, these are all bands that, that, that evolved and changed. And I just, I can't imagine being as interested, you know, like I get the Slayer itch occasionally, like most people who love metal do, but I don't know. Slayer just Slayer gets old to me because they and to their credit, I mean, they just really stayed in that lane and and in a lot of ways they're untouchable in that speed metal, you know, demonic lyric thing. Um but I don't know. I I guess I'm not really interested in in um credibility and what people arbitrarily decide is credible in music. My favorite bands are the biggest bands in the world, which is why we do a Metallica podcast, you know? And if you're going to be the biggest band in the world, you're going to have people that are going to get upset with your artistic decisions. I guess that's just built in. Do you think they would have made the Black Album with the way it sounded had Cliff been living? Yeah, that's an that's an awesome question. And we actually had Cliff's dad, Ray Burton, on um, before he passed away. He came on the show and we became friendly with him. And that was something that we talked to Ray about Ray Ray seems to think that Cliff would have had a problem with it. Um, not not any kind of, you know, they, they were all brothers. They were all tight. And of course, they all looked up to Cliff. So he thinks that Cliff definitely would have been an influence maybe away from, maybe more the image side of it too, more into load and reload, the cutting the hair and wearing the, you know, like the Cuban mafia suits and guy liner. And, but... I, I've always thought that Cliff would have actually been kind of down for it because Cliff was the one who was playing Leonard Skinner on the bus. And Cliff was the one introducing the band to Yes and to um, to atypical hard rock stuff, you know. Uh, he's the one who introduced the band to the Misfits. And so 
Cliff was interested in different kinds of music. And um, another aspect of it that I think is really fascinating is Cliff wasn't really that involved with the making of their albums. He was definitely one of the primary songwriters. But there are all sorts of stories about, like, he would just... Uh, one of the one of the records, it's either Lightning or, or Puppets, where they're all getting on the plane to go to Copenhagen. He missed the flight. Like, he didn't even show up. And they finally got a hold of him. He's like, yeah, you know, the first week is just you guys arguing about drums, so I'll figure I'll just come later. And then the stories of him being in the studio, he just goes in, knocks his stuff out, and then leaves. And uh, so I think about that, too. I'm like, well... Uh, it's just easy to sort of imagine that Cliff would have been really upset about it because he had this really great, like, he was just very pure, you know, like very honest and pure and had a lot of strong opinions and was a guy they looked up to. But at the same time, though, he might have been cool with it because, you know, it got broad and it got melodic. The I think the hooks got as strong as anything. I mean, the hook to Sabbath True is as strong as anything they've ever done. Uh, Bob Rock famously called it the cashmere of the 90s, which I think is is pretty spot on. And as much as you've heard Inner Sandman or think it's weak or slow or something, I mean, if you really try to, as a, as an experiment, listen to it with fresh ears, like imagine that you've never heard it before, it's super heavy and dark and awesome. And those are all things that Cliff liked, you know? And I'm thinking about... Cliff co-wrote Fade to Black. Uh, Cliff co-wrote Orion. You know, he wrote Orion, which has a lot of slow, melodic parts. Uh, think about the slow part to the song Master of Puppets. Think about the song The Thing That Should Not Be, which could have been on uh, on the Black Album, in my opinion. So those are my opinions about that. I could be wrong. He's not here to to, to defend himself or to, or to weigh in on it. But it is interesting to think about the force he would have had on the band, uh, sonically or otherwise, had he had he lived. Yeah, that's an interesting point, you know, because everybody looks at Cliff as when the when the when they were doing Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning, he was like the larger than life guy. I mean, there 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 are fans that will only vote for a Cliff song over anything else. It doesn't matter what album it's on; it's always got to be Cliff. So he really had like a really dedicated fan base within Metallica, mm-hmm. and it's just interesting to think about. What would have happened had he remained in the band and, and and didn't have the horrible accident, or they didn't have the horrible accident they had, and what they would have been like and how they would have evolved? Would it have been a slower evolution? Would it have been the same? You know, those are questions that I often think about. Like you said, he's not here to answer that, and that's unfortunate. But I'd like to think that you know James and Lars also have a you know obviously have a huge influence on the band now. And, you know, I think they really wanted to go in that direction because I think they didn't, like you said, they were getting tired of playing these long songs, you know, and looking at the crowd and, 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 and seeing them being exhausted and being bummed out. So I think it would have happened. I just don't know at the speed or how many albums it would have taken. And then if it would have gone slower, who knows? They may have, they may have missed their window of, of becoming, you know, this larger-than-life band, this huge stadium touring band that the black album gave them the opportunity to be yeah yeah i I think i think it he would have had more impact on the load and reload era more than the black album i think i can see cliff defending inner sandman and saying it's fucking awesome especially because it was kirk's riff and him and kirk were tight and um 
I think he might have had a problem with some of the more bloated double album uh, silly stuff that's on Load and Reload. Um, but because people forget too that, that the Black Album has a couple of like, it has a couple of songs on the Black Album that could have been on Injustice for All easily. I think Holier Than Thou could have been on Injustice for All easily. So could The Struggle Within. Through the Never sounds like puppets. It's kind of like Master Puppets Part 2 with this kind of spider riff at the top. Um, it's like Sandman, Nothing Else Matters, Unforgiven. Those songs that kind of bummed people out in that way, that they weren't speed metal or whatever. But the Black Album actually, I mean, there's some pretty great thrashy stuff on the Black Album. I think it's really load and reload. So the Black Album happened, and I think fans were like, uh-oh, oh no, oh crap. And then the people who were butthurt about that had no idea what was coming, you know, because if is if they're upset about Holier Than Thou, then they're really not going to like Fuel, you know, or The Memory Remains. Yeah, I, you know, remember when Load and Reload came out. I always liked the deeper cuts, like Devil's Dance. Mm-hmm. I always had, a, you know, had a, had a connection with those songs uh, more mm-hmm. so than the ones that were the, you know, the hits. But I also remember, too, with the Black Album, like you said, you know, I, I never thought when I first heard it. I was a junior in high school when that when that album came out, sophomore or junior, and I didn't think it was like light Metallica. I thought it was heavy too. I thought when I heard Enter Sandman, it was it was just as heavy as the other material prior to that. Sad but True was just an amazing song. Wherever I May Roam, all that stuff. When you first heard it back then, and you're sixteen, seventeen years old, I didn't really. I mean, yes, the songs were shorter and they had the hooks that maybe the other albums didn't, but I just felt that it was, it, it was great. It was, it was another Metallica masterpiece, and I didn't understand the problem that people had until you started to talk to those hardcore fans who, you know, when you mention nothing else matters, it's almost like they, they pass out. They get, they yeah. get anxiety, you know, but it's, it's just a shame because here they are as artists trying to do something different, trying to evolve, bringing in a new, a new producer, trying to do something different, because I don't think Metallica would have lasted if the Black Album didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the 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 commercial peak of their entire career. I mean, I guess you could argue that the peak rode into Load and Reload, but, uh, you know, they toured it for like three years. A bunch of big singles, and yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a defining moment not only in their career but like in all of metal and i i think i think the inner sandman other than like iron man or back in black like songs like that i think inner sandman is probably the most recognizable heavy metal song of all time like so the accomplishments of that era are just undeniable and and you can you can want to shove metallica back into a club with raven on the kill them all for one tour playing Whiplat. You can try to keep them there if you want, and that's fine, but the band has other plans, obviously. And, you know, there are people who are so hardcore about the underground thrash sensibility of Metallica's early stuff that they got off the ride with Fade to Black, you know? And (laughs) Metallica basically starts in 82, and then you got people getting off the ride in early 84. So to those people, I mean, obviously, listen to whatever you want, and you can have any opinion you want about music, but those people, I think, are just leaving so much great music on the table. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, what you did about, like, to you, the uh, the Black Album was just another good Metallica album. So for me, I think the first thing I ever heard of them would have been Inner Sandman. So in a lot of ways, I'm almost disqualified from this conversation because I'm just so locked into the context of how I 
came online with the band, but I became a huge fan. And then, so my first album that came out as a Metallica fan would have been Load. So I had to wait like four or five years for that. But you better believe that once I got the Black album, I got I got Bench and Purge, and then I went back, and then was a huge fan of everything. And I don't ever remember, other than being like, oh yeah, Kill 'Em All doesn't sound as good. I could just recognize as a kid that the recording was shittier. But I just don't remember drawing any kind of lines in the sand of like, I mean, I had to read all this in, in criticism, you know? that oh the, this record's not thrash and i didn't know what producers did or or that i didn't know who Fleming Rasmussen was i knew who Bob Rock was cuz i was reading the liner notes of the black album but to me it just really sounded like another album by a band i like and i mentioned that on our podcast recently and it was in, the feedback to that was pretty interesting because about half the people who responded to that comment extremely vehemently disagree with me they're like how can you not notice a difference between disposable heroes and the unforgiven for example right and then half the people were like no i totally get it and, and even people who were like og maybe they saw the aussie tour and so they were they followed the band from 84 85 86 all the way to black album and they were like yeah to me it just sounded like the progression of metallica so it's hard to parse that out and it's kind of different for everybody but it is a thing to behold the 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 divisiveness of that album and i I wonder a lot about Metallica's feelings about it, especially now. Um, it doesn't seem like they were too bothered by it, because for every fan they lost, they must have gained hundreds and hundreds and hundreds on those, on those tours, especially that Guns tour. I also think there's a little bit of machizo, you know, with the, oh, I'm only going to like these these four albums, you know, Kill Em All, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Justice for All, mm-hmm. and then, but I got my secret you know, black album and load and reload in my house that no one will know that I have, but I enjoy the music. But to my fellow Metallica fans, I, I got to say I can't like it. So I think there's a lot of that too as well. Um, you know, it's just like when, when people, you know, say that they don't like or they hate Bon Jovi. You know, I wonder how many people who say they hate Bon Jovi actually have Bon Jovi's music in their collection <laughs> or their, gro- or you know, their because- girlfriends do. And then when their girlfriends play it, they're like, oh, that's pretty good. You know? Um, yeah, exactly. I, I remember, you know, get, like diving way into the, uh, into the puppets era. And, you know, James at one of the big festivals they played famously had kill Bon Jovi on his, uh, like on his headstock. Cause I guess Bon Jovi's helicopter flew down while they were doing their set. And yeah, I guess I guess for I was too young, and I again just a kid of MTV. So if Living on a Prayer came on MTV, I was fucking loving it, bro. I loved Bon Jovi, and I still love and respect Bon Jovi, especially as songwriters, um, and all the all that great Desmond Child stuff that he did. And um, but I remember seeing that and being like, yeah, I guess there was a time when it was like really uncool to like some of that stuff, like. Uh, um, like, was it uncool to like White Snake? I don't even know. Was it uncool to like Eighties Kiss? I mean, it's it's been kind well, of uncool to be a Kiss fan the whole time through. I feel like my whole <laughs> life as a Kiss diehard, I'm just defending them. But um, all that stuff of of being on on a team and not being, you know, you can't like this because you're over here. I just thankfully kind of escaped that way of looking at music. Yeah, yeah, I did too. I I, I like to look at each album as its own, right? It's not connected to the previous one, and it's not you know, what's going to happen in the future. I I like to walk in and absorb an album with my ears, my mind, and just absorb it and just take it in as I listen to it. Did you grow up in Chicago? Yeah, I did. So what was the vibe? Like, um, I mean, you would have been a teenager. So what, like, the hard rock scene 
the perceptions of in the late '80s, early '90s? Were people listening to Motley Crue? Were people was Motley Crue cool? What was going on in Chicago oh, yeah. at that time? Oh yeah, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood with a bunch of kids my age to my older brother's age, so. Mm. The younger kids always had the music that was filtered from their older brothers. So, right, you know, I remember, you know, being home from school one day while my brother was at school and going in and sneaking in to listen to Van Halen 1. I was like <laughs> seven years old. And I remember one of my neighbors making my brother a mixtape with two Judas Priest songs. And I remember hearing you know, a, a guy, a kid, probably three years older than me, bringing his boombox to the park down the street while we were all there playing wiffle ball or whatever and hearing the song bastard by shout on shout the devil by motley Crue, you know it was yeah. just so it was it was a huge thing i mean it was you know chicago had its scene every every town or every city had their own scene and a vibrant scene where cover bands really didn't exist back then so you could draw a full house at a club with bands playing original music hmm. Yeah. Just local to Chicago. And that was something that I was a little too young to experience, but I was aware of it. And I knew of all the local Chicago bands, you know, whether there was a band called Hammer On and there was a band called Odette and all these Sergeant, you know, band called Sergeant Rocks and all these bands that were in existence back then. It was, it certainly wasn't as big as the Sunset Strip scene, which was just completely crazy, but mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, all that stuff was cool. I mean, I was the one. I went to a Catholic school, so I was the one wearing a Motley Crue shirt underneath my uniform shirt Love and it. getting like like get detentions from the nuns. You know, I had this Motley Crue shirt with a skull with handcuffs going through the eyes, right? And you could see the outline of the artwork underneath my blue shirt, my powder blue shirt. And I would just I'd get called on the principal's office. She'd rip my shirt off. And, Love it. You yeah, know, it was know, it was knowing it was that great. you had a knowing that you had a pentagram on you somewhere <laughs> that they might not be able to <laughs> I, see. Well, yeah, and then that was the whole thing too. Like all our folders were all like with the you know we would draw Iron Maiden and Van Halen and Kiss. I mean, I the first album I bought was in 1984. I was nine. The first album I bought with my own money was Kiss Lick It Up. Hmm. So yeah, it was pretty vibrant and you couldn't get away with it and then when you saw the u.s festival on tv when you know in 1983 i was eight and you saw van halen and scorpions and ozzy and triumph and priest and quiet riot it was like wow this is and you saw the sea of people i mean there had to be at least 150,000 people at this show and it was just you know the greatest line ever on stage is david lee roth during the opening of Romeo Delight after the backstory of them headlining the U.S. festival was they were, they had, they went on late because they were all wasted. They had to sober up. And, you know, the first song is Romeo Delight and David Lee Roth in the middle of the song goes, I forgot the fucking words. And it's like, you're like (laughs) eight years old and you're like, dude, that's awesome. You know, it's like, it was just a great moment to experience that and to, you know, be eight years old and you know and nothing else i mean there was no you know there was no video games i mean there was atari but that was really primitive and there was just there was you know seven channels on your tv before you got cable and able to watch it so yeah it was pretty it was pretty cool back then and you know i became a student of the music because i i loved it so much like i would just 
you know, and, and engross myself in liner notes and absorbing music and listening to it and, you know, listening to the, the hard rock metal station till one in the morning when I was like 11 and having going to school the next day completely like tired and not being able to function. And I don't know how I got through it, but it was, it just became a huge passion. I just loved everything about it. Yeah, I try to I try to remember that because I think that's where it comes from. I think it's a little misplaced. I, I think to take that I did like because what it is is fusing of your identity with with music with the music which I have. I mean, I I dude, my music is the greatest love of my of my life. You know, and I have a family now and a wife and a daughter who obviously are the most important things to me. But in some ways, it's such a different thing that, that by decades predates me even knowing them. So it's this thing that's just been with me. It was my my doorway to other worlds. It was my escape from what was tough about parts of my childhood. And it's it's a magical landscape that's completely totemic and and um, eternal for me. So I get all that. I just think it gets a little misplaced um, when you make it about being on a team or being right. And I was, <laughs> you know, I've gotten really grumpy about this on my podcast. But dude, if we get anything wrong about Metallica on our show, you better believe we're going to hear about it. Like to, to the minute detail of James didn't use that kind of guitar pick in 1986 or whatever it is, you know, and. I get so annoyed with that, but I understand too that, like me, a lot of our listeners, these records were like their best friends, and so all they did was listen to these albums and look at the liner notes, and every Hit Parader magazine or, or anything that you could get your hands on back then that had any information or pictures about your favorite band, you were just going to consume it, you know? So for us to get what seems like a flippant detail wrong about whatever the fuck in master of puppets that means a lot to people you know so i think about that kind of stuff all the time just that that really intense connection to this music that we love and how it plays itself out especially as we all get older i think about that often yeah i see the same thing when i do the polls with bands you know i line i line up songs in these brackets and some people take this very serious, you know, it's, it's very intricate yeah. to them. And I love that on one hand, like I really love and appreciate someone's passion for a band music that's connected with them. But on the other side too, what does it become, does it lose, does it lose the fun in that music is yeah. supposed to represent and connect with, you know, sometimes I, I think there needs to be that balance where yes, you know, you could be, that serious about it and that interested about it but at the same time you don't want it to become like this study of music you want it to enjoy the way the music was intended which is even though Metallica's lyrics or a band like Rush's lyrics are a lot deeper than a lot of other bands it's still supposed to be a good time it's still supposed to you know take you to another place and I think sometimes when you get that serious it it hinders you from doing that well, there's there's a I've noticed this that it's it's sort of a need to to display how big a fan you are in terms of trying to get everything right because there's a strange I guess there's a strange competition amongst some fans of like I know more than you and I I just haven't felt that I mean maybe I felt that when I was in high school because that's <laughs> that's when you should be feeling immature feelings like that and it's just been so long since I wanted to compete with anybody about how much information I know about James Hetfield but. Um, but I, I agree. We say we used to say at the beginning of our show that we know more than you, we know less than you, and 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 so the idea of the, the idea of the podcast was really just to celebrate the music and not. I mean, we do a lot of research, dude, and and we really do care about getting the stuff right because 
you know, we're creating a body of work that will hopefully be interesting to Metallica fans for a long time, even after we're done. So we try to get it right. But when when just being an encyclopedia about the band is more important than having fun and like getting connected with why we love this shit to begin with, then if we move away from that, I, I just begin to get less interested in what's interesting about the show. And I'm sure that, you know, that your whole premise is finding out what got people interested and hooked and moving away from that into a trivia battle. That's just, it doesn't interest me. Yeah. You know, I, I, like the discussions that arise from it and, and, you know, where the conversation goes. And I always appreciate that. But like I said, sometimes I I believe that it takes the fun out of everything, you know, and, and, you know, I know there's people that are very passionate, like I said, and it just becomes like, Hey man, you know, this is just a poll. This is just a Twitter poll. It's not meant to, because there's people that will attack other people on my Twitter feed because of how they voted or, you know, a song that they like, you know, like it's hard to imagine, Oh my God, how can someone like a song off a load, you know? And it's (laughs) like, well, maybe that's the first time they heard the band or maybe that's how they were introduced to the band. So there's always that connection with them. And I, you know, I just wish people would just respect that. I mean, music has the ability to connect with, people in various ways and there's no opinion that's wrong there's never opinion about music that's wrong but you also have to understand and appreciate where someone else's perspective is coming from you Absolutely. know i mean i yeah i grew up in my era you grew up in your era and i always like that conversation i like that conversation where i'm learning about you and where your tastes are and what your perspective is and what connects with you musically where you know i'm from a different generation so i connect with things a lot different like my son who's 15 I you know have the physical connection to music albums and and you know touching and feeling and that physical connection to it whereas he doesn't so it's a totally different way of listening and that happens you know what your you know my first album was Kiss and moving on to other albums. And I'm kind of like you. I like a, a, a wide variety of stuff. You know, I mean, I like everything from, you know, Metallica, Led Zeppelin, Kiss, all the way to, you know, Butch Walker, Pete Yorn, um, artists like that, Lucero, you know, stuff like that. So my, my tastes are very wide in range, and I don't have an issue with that. I know no. there's some people that do, and that's unfortunate. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Butch and Pete Yorn, two artists I absolutely love. Pete, Pete Yorn's album the Day I Forgot which I think is his second album is probably in my top 20 of all time I know every second of that record and then Butch Walker's album Afraid of Ghosts um, it, the year that record came out it was all I was listening to so I, I'm in the same boat and I can't really imagine feeling differently and I, I also don't judge or begrudge anybody who they're, they stay in this one lane like sometimes because we do a Metallica podcast and my co-host Ethan was in a metal band called Demon Hunter and our our metal pedigree is 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 okay you know but I think because we do the podcast people assume that we're just like metal freaks which we are definitely not so you know we'll have we'll have people who are like can you guys do an episode on like the history of like Norwegian black metal and I'm like I don't know shit about that bro <laughs> my favorite metal band is Metallica dude uh or like can you you know can you guys give us your thoughts on the uh the sonic evolution of Celtic Frost and I'm like I can't because I don't know it you know um 
If it's Pantera or Tool or Metallica, you know, the biggest bands of the genre, then no problemo. But I, I'm more versed in Radiohead than I am in, you know, in the new wave of British heavy metal. Yeah, I so. I dove into the new wave of British heavy metal. I was, I was a fan of a few bands growing up in the early 80s, of course, Maiden, Saxon, and I'm trying to think of some like, like Tank, bands like that. And then... I really revisited. I went down this rabbit hole for like six months in, in like like four years ago, and I must have spent a fortune on these rare new wave of British heavy metal band albums. And it was like I finally had to stop. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I I, I don't need this rare, you know, savage album or this rare, you know, tank <laughs> album. You know, like like. You know, and I love the stuff, you know, it's great. I do enjoy how, it. How much of that do you think, how much of that do you think is nostalgia? Like, not, not to take away from the music or how it's hitting you now, or because it's also interesting to think about how it's hitting you now with everything you've been through since then. But how much of that was, it was getting you in touch with when you were a kid? Because I have this theory, my friend Bob Schneider and I talk about this all the time, that like the music that happens to you from like nine to like 14 it's just it it gets encapsulated in this sacred little bubble that no, that nothing can ever tamper with and it, it becomes this portal or something was was that some similar to you like kind of getting back into something that you loved when you were a kid and and your your adult way of expressing it now is to just get like rare vinyl that you couldn't get when you were a kid right yeah i, I think that has a lot to do with it you know because yeah. when you think back of that new wave of british heavy metal era the album covers were so like, you know, so fun, right? Yeah, it was like it was it was like you're you're walking around with a piece of art, you know, like on the album cover. Yeah. So that was always intriguing, you know. When you look, when you talk about Seek and Destroy with the the you know sonically and how it was produced, where it's not the best production, it's very reminiscent of what the new wave of British heavy metal was. A lot of that oh, stuff, that, you know, a lot of that stuff that was recorded was very primitive and very underproduced. I mean, I think, you know, some of the albums I have, I love the music, but it's difficult to listen to because it's like, man, I'm like, they didn't know what the hell they were doing back then, or maybe they just didn't have the equipment to do it, but right. it just really doesn't capture the essence. I mean, there's some bands, like I said, Saxon, Maiden, of course, and Diamond Head, and there's another band called Quartz that always had good production, but, you know, here I am mentioning Quartz on a podcast. Um but it's just it's it's I, I like that I appreciate that music because it's the first movement that was directly influenced by the Sabbaths and the Deep Purples in the UK that mm-hmm. produced that movement. And you can even probably even include Priest in you know with with uh, you know influencing the new wave of British heavy metal. But it was like that first group of bands that. Had a had a direct, or the influence had a direct influence on what they played, you know. Absolutely, so. you can kind of put them in a family, and you can draw lines. And uh, you know, smarter people than than me have have pontificated about th- what thrash is. And I've always thought it was this really great collision of all of that new wave stuff, which I I love that stuff. I love Maiden, the, that first Def Leppard record, and any of the stuff I hear from that, I love it. But it's only in terms of what I hear, how it influenced Metallica, but it, but that sort of Southern California, the collision of that new wave of British heavy metal with punk rock, you know, with those bands that they were getting into, like Budgie and uh, um, the Misfits and stuff, 
that's kind of what I think of as the stew that created thrash. And then I, I feel like Metallica kind of out of the gate invented it and perfected it, which I know people will disagree with that and say Testament or Exodus or Megadeth or whatever. But almost as soon as they invented it, they're moving forward to kind of echo back to a little bit of the previous conversation. It's like they invented it, they perfected it, they made like the seminal thrash songs and albums, and then they started to move on and, and evolve it. And that's, I think that's why I still listen to it all these years later. Like that's why I still listen to their new album, which their last album is some of the best sounding uh, and written songs that they've done in a long time. Yeah, I agree. I took my son to that tour when they played Soldier Field, and I thought it was just an amazing, amazing show. And I love the album. Yeah, I, I like that they're making new music that's still, in my opinion, relevant and still and, and they're playing it live. Right. Like a lot of bands, they 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 put out the record and then maybe play one song. I mean, they were playing four or five songs from that album when they when I saw them live. Yeah, it was a legitimate record cycle. It, it wasn't like, well, here's just an excuse to tour and play the B- black album hits again and sell out stadiums they it was a legit it was as legitimate as if they put it out 15 years ago when i guess maybe someone would have argued they were more relevant but i think they proved in this last cycle that they're still they're still viable as a real band make like you know kiss kiss putting out monster and sonic boom they would play one song from those albums and then it was just another excuse to play love gun again and i understand that it's hard to compete Think about a band like Kiss that's having to compete with all those great classic albums they made. And even a band like Van Halen's going to have to do that. Any band that's as old as these bands we're talking about, Metallica is basically always competing with Creeping Death, and which is one of the greatest metal songs, as far as I'm concerned, ever conceived. So the fact that they stepped up to the plate and, and delivered something like Moth in the Flame or Spit Out the Bone that can sit next to Creeping Death in a set list or in a catalog, and it makes sense. It's not some sort of consolation like, oh, the mid-50s old rockers, they they gave it a nice go, and it's not like that at all. It's as good as anything. So how did your 15-year-old son, what did he think about the gig? Oh, he loved it. You know, he um, he just totally enjoyed it. A week before that, I took him to see Iron Maiden. And so he kind of had like the one-two punch and he just, you know, he's been a fan ever since. And he's actually the one that wanted to go. I mean, because he liked, he heard Metallica first with the Hardwired album, you know, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. So he was you know, listening to that, Moth to a Flame, mm-hmm. you know, Atlas Rise, all that stuff. So he, so, you know, he's a, God, how old was he when, when we went to that? That was, uh, he was 12. and. Wow. And he, you know, this is what he was listening to. You know, when he heard Maiden first, you know, it was Book of Souls. Book that's of the Souls, album tour, that, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's what I, I, when people criticize others for liking a period of music that maybe they're not as fond of, they don't realize that when that person came in, usually is always going to be their favorite era because that's Absolutely. what first brought them into that, you know, to, to, to that band, that connected them to that band. So, yeah, you know... He's he's waiting for another album, you know. He's like, when's Metallica gonna tour again? And I'm like, I don't know, you know. Usually, obviously now with everything going on, everything's been delayed. But you know, and and with the other thing too is how many more albums does Metallica really have to give? You know, I mean, you know, they're they're getting older. They're very physical on stage. I mean, I know they're they're starting to have health problems, and and uh, as they get older, obviously that's normal, but. You know, maybe, you know, definitely one album, maybe two, but you think about their tour cycles, 
it's going to be difficult to, to put two albums out, you know, because I usually do an album every four or five years. Yeah, this last one, it was eight years, which is so long. And um, they work, you know, especially the last decade or so, they work slow. And to get an album as good as we got for them, it just takes time. And uh, so, yeah, in terms of what, what's coming up with them, I, I think on the one hand, everything you're saying makes sense. And it takes a long time and maybe one or two, I guess. And then they got to tour it and it's got to make sense for how they're, the, the machine of Metallica works. On the other hand, I think I think legitimately they were surprised at how well received the album was. I, I don't think I don't think they thought people cared as much outside of their big hits. So the fact that the the album resonated with their fan base and that like everyone was really hungry to hear the deep cuts and and uh, wanted to really treat the record normally was a surprise to them. And I think it got them really excited about being more creative. Because they're just like any other artist, a little insecure, especially as they as they age through the process. And, you know, rock and roll traditionally is a young man's game. And they're competing with the Slipknots and the Ghosts and and uh, whomever else. And I think that, that, like any artist, that can kind of get to them and they start to doubt themselves. But Hardwired, I, I got to imagine for them, was a huge... Um, vindication is not the right word. Just a huge encouragement that people still want to hear new stuff. Because, you know, I'm not dying to hear a new Kiss record, and I love those dudes. And I actually loved their last album, Monster. And I wish they would have played more of it live, but I'm not really dying for a new Kiss album. I liked the new Maiden stuff. I saw that same tour that it sounds like you guys saw where Ghost opened. Was that the one you saw? Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Uh, that show blew my mind, dude. I thought that show was so incredible. I, I can't imagine being 12 and seeing that in the same year as the Metallica tour. Like, the stadium tour with the big screens. That's the kind of stuff that when you're 12, you never forget. You know, that's like important. Those are important moments in a 12-year-old's life. Yeah. You know, he's been to so many shows with me. You know, the Metallica, Maiden stuff. His first show was, I took him to see Butch Walker in Kentucky when he was five. Hmm. And he really enjoyed himself at that. And then we've just been going to shows. I mean, he's gone to Winery Dogs with me. He's... Who else has he gone? Judas Priest. He's seen Johnny Lang. You know, so I try to expose him to a different, you know, variety of stuff. It's mostly rock-based. Um, I think he really enjoyed Johnny Lang, which really surprised me, you know, um, just being the blues player. I remember seeing Johnny Lang when he was, like, 18 years old, open up for Aerosmith wow. back in the day. Um, so, he, yeah, he's got a great ear for a young kid, and he likes what he likes. What's really cool, too, is he... He keeps me up to date on the new rock bands. You mm -hmm. know, like he's always like, oh, check these guys out. These guys are really good. Check out the Amazons or check out Goodbye June. And, yeah, it's it's uh, it's nice to kind of have that. And, of course, you know, with the movie The Dirt coming out, the Motley Crue movie, you know, the movie that he wasn't supposed to see, but I come to find out that him and all his friends have seen it multiple times, right. has, you know, has just injected more energy into the rock movement, I think, you know, with, now young kids have experienced and seen what Motley Crue was about. And that's another thing, too, that I've touched on is just the lack of rock star right now in rock and roll, you know, that, that do connect with kids, that kids don't want to take their eyes off. You know, when a movie, The Dirt, which is about a band in their heyday 30 years ago, can resonate and connect with kids that are in high school now and kids want more and now kids want to go see them in concert, that's a sign that rock and roll needs to stop playing it down the middle of the road and start being rock stars again, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, you, I think the closest thing you have to a rock star right now is someone like Post Malone. 
um, who who sort of stylistically and aesthetically embodies what's dangerous about that kind of thing. Um, I mean, other than him, which I'm a huge Post Malone fan. I, I don't know where you sit on that, but I, I think you know it's definitely not hard rock music. But in terms of like the rock star persona, he embodies that more than anyone. But it would be like I don't know. It'd be like Jack White and uh, the guy from Queens of the Stone Age. But it's it's hard to even think of it. Like maybe Corey uh, Corey Taylor. Um, but I do think it, you the, know. I do Go think ahead. the guy from 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 the Struts. Uh, Luke Spiller has the ability to be that person because I've seen the struts live and they're incredible. And that guy has the crowd in the palm of his hand. Um, and I think there's a couple others that can grow into it. But yeah, I agree with you on Post Malone. I'm not a fan of his music, but I do, I, I am aware that hip hop embraces controversy. They embrace that rock and roll image that for whatever reason, rock and roll doesn't want to, you know, do anymore i don't know why or when that happened i've always said that if a pr person is telling you what not to say you have the wrong pr person the pr person should be telling you okay you said that well now we have to deal with it now we have to you know respond to it (laughs) right you know but you know i I just yeah axel rose was like hey by the way um i jumped into the crowd last night and beat up a photographer and then i ended the show an hour and a half early sorry uh, <laughs> that's what you guys have to deal with this week, you know. Or uh, sorry, I went on a I went on a 15 minute rant in Japan about Warren Beatty. So sorry, you guys have to deal with that now. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I'm talking about. It's like you know, if, if people react to you, that's a good thing. You know, if parents are ter- telling their kids to turn it off when you're on the TV, that's good. That's a good thing. You you shouldn't run away from that. That means kids want to listen to you. I know when my parents, I had to sneak bark at the moon into my house I had to like hide my Maiden records when I was a kid but it made me want to listen to it more made me like them more because there was that sense of danger and that's what I see with people like Post Malone yeah and other artists in that genre that maybe I'm not a fan of but I I connect with what the image with what with the image that they're trying to portray I totally get it yeah from and from for me it was hiding uh facelift and hiding um a Danzig album and I also was hiding Dr. Dre's The Chronic from my mom like th- those were the ones that I was like if my mom finds this shit yeah. she's gonna throw this away uh, and I remember my mom found my facelift CD and this is actually one of the coolest things my mom ever did she didn't freak out she didn't throw it away but she she sat down and listened to it with me and read the lyrics with me and cause you know the big song was Man in the Box which has some sort of you know anti-religious <laughs> big sentiments in the chorus and uh, but but she read the whole thing and kind of took the whole thing in. And if you do that, you'll see that Alice in Chains are harmless, and it's just rock and roll made by guys in their early twenties, and it's mostly kind of dumb and fun. So I think about that all the time. That that when my my worst nightmare was her finding some of these albums, and then she found it and she just read it with me and was like, "All right, cool." She checked it out, and then she split and let me have it. You know, so. Um, and and I actually listen to a lot of Post Malone, and his his stuff's fine. I get why kids love it. There's nothing that risque about it. And you know, he was a kid who loved hard rock. He's a huge Metallica fan, and and covers Metallica songs. And he recently did a uh, like a COVID benefit where him and Travis Barker and a couple other musicians performed like 20 deep cut Nirvana songs to raise money. They raised like two million bucks. And uh, he played electric guitar, and he sang like Kurt Cobain. It was awesome. It rocked. You know. Um, 
the modern sort of hip hop stars taking on the rock star persona. They're they're more eclectic, I think, than maybe the, some of the genre stars of the last fifteen or twenty years, which I think is a really cool thing about music and good for someone like your son to see or my daughter to see. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, I I think though that hip hop and artists like Post Malone realized that there was a vacuum, realized that right. there was a want of the current generation to have that rock star, and if rock and roll is not going to take it. They're not going to, you know, continue on with doing what they're supposed to do and carrying the rock and roll flag. Someone else is taking it, and that right now is hip hop. That's right, you know, artists like Post Malone. I mean, I think it really even started with Eminem. You know, when you when right. you go back, you know, with with you know the the controversies that surrounded him, and maybe you could even peel back the orange and go back to Snoop Dogg. But you know, when you saw like the early two thousands, where really there was a lack of direction with rock music. And there was a lot of cookie cutter stuff. Not all of it was cookie cutter, but there was a lot of it. I just think that they're filling the void. And when you look at the article in Forbes magazine about Motley Crue's demographics that are now buying their merchandise and streaming their music, before the movie, it was 35 and older, which was the majority. Now, it's 35 and under that is Mm. listening to their music and buying their merchandise. So... Say what you want who's about another Mot- band. Who, who's another band that, that you would like to see a movie like The Dirt made about? That that had the because I watched it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I yeah. read the book too. Um, but a, a net sort of a Netflix straight to streaming. But it had a budget. It looks good. What, what's a what are the couple of bands that you would like to see that? Well, I'll I'll answer that in two parts. If I'm looking for big screen, Martin Scorsese directed. That's totally authentic. I'd <laughs> love to see the story of Led Zeppelin. Okay, um, mm. so that's what would be what would be my like big screen. I'm gonna go see that movie at midnight the night before, and right. and and go check it out. And now if I'm going to straight to stream, and it's a band that you know has a budget similar to The Dirt, I would say Guns N' Roses. Yeah, you know, I mean, just another all the stuff another Mick Wall book that they could uh, adapt, I guess. Yeah, I mean, when you think about all the stuff going on with them in the 80s and, you know, with with Tracy Guns and Axl Rose and that breakup and how all that started and, you know, all the tension between Slash and Axl. I, you know, getting back to the dirt really quick, I've I've often thought that should have been a miniseries because there was so much stuff that they didn't even talk about. You know, that really would have worked as sort of an episodic, like a 10-episode, hour-long journey yeah. through their stuff. Yeah, and maybe the success of that film will inspire that. And, and the success of uh, of the Freddie Mercury film, which I thought was excellent, Bohemian Rhapsody. I haven't seen the Elton John film yet, but I've heard it's also excellent. So maybe we're kind of slipping into a, a cool era where there are budgets for that and there's a lot of interest in that. I think another thing that really got kid. This is kind of old now, but it still keeps the fire of rock and roll alive for kids is Guitar Hero. Yeah, I agree. You know, kids are hearing, uh, you know, bands that I don't think they ever would have heard of. Like, you know, my wife knows some of these hard rock songs from playing Guitar Hero that she never would have heard of. So that gives me hope, too, that that people are still interested in in guitar-based music, which I don't want to do a get-off-my-lawn thing. I, I love Post Malone. I listen to Post Malone and Drake all the time. But I do think, I do worry about guitar-based hard rock music having a seat at the table uh, culturally in music because there's something just so kinetic and animating about that, especially for kids and, and uh, the danger of it, the the rebelliousness of it that I think is culturally really important. And I, I hope we don't lose that. 
Yeah, I, I've often thought about that too with the guitar hero, you know, whether it's Eddie Van Halen or Randy Rhodes or Satriani. I, mean, I had Satriani on a couple weeks ago, and, you know, his music today is just as good as it was when I was growing up. And it's mm-hmm. a shame that there's not, there's really not an outlet right now for that type of music, you know? I mean, even the new rock stuff that's coming out, I like a lot of the new, new stuff. And I even, I mean, I, I may, I may upset some people, but I, I, I like Greta Van Fleet. I've seen them three times live and they're incredible. I think they need to work on their, you know, their stage presence. Um, and I think they should be allowed to evolve their sound, you know, or, or, you know, evolve as musicians and maybe get away from the Led Zeppelin comparisons. But I don't have a problem with young kids listening to blues based rock that features the guitar. So, right. you know, I, I do think, though, that there isn't that guy that's on guitar right now that just, well, there are, but I'm talking about with new bands that just wails, that just, like, you got to hear it, right. you know? I, I, think, I think that um, an unlikely guitar hero, I mean, I, I would have <laughs> found this opinion really distasteful about 15 years ago, but truly an unlikely guitar hero for now is John Mayer. And uh, I know he's super uncool to like, but he's just grown into a really amazing uh, songwriter and an, uh, just an amazing guitar player. And if, 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 you're, if all you know is your body's a wonderland, I would encourage anyone listening to maybe do a little bit of a deeper dive. Look up, look up on YouTube him just playing guitar. An amazing guitar player. I think Lizzie Hale is a pretty bitching guitar player who I love that, I love that she's out there doing her thing, like holding it down for the electric guitar. And she can rock... Um, but I also wonder too if like I'm too old to know, <laughs> you know, like maybe there are some really cool guitar-based bands with some future guitar heroes that I don't even have the pulse on yet, you know. Yeah. You might know more about that than me. Yeah, I I do think there's some nice, you know, some good young guitar players, but in terms of innovation, I don't right. hear the innovation. I don't I don't hear the Eddie Van Halen that changes the game. You know, I don't hear the Tom Morello that I was just about to mention style. Tom. I think the last yeah. guy that, because when I think about people who change the game, uh, Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen are like the two pillars of who changed guitar, right? Right. And then may, you can maybe put the edge in there. Johnny Marr might fit around in there somewhere. But Tom Morello is the last guy who did things with a guitar that no one had ever done, right? Yeah. Jack White might be up in there because he does some far out stuff with the guitar that I felt like I never heard before with whammy pedals and stuff. But Tom Morello making the guitar sound like a robot. I was like, I'll never forget hearing that stuff, hearing Evil Empire for the first time and hearing People of the Sun where he's playing it with this Allen wrench and or the solo to Bulls on Parade with all that scratching, just thinking it was pedals. And I remember they would even put in their liner notes, all the sounds you hear on this <laughs> album were made by a guitar, no pedals, you know? They were like proud of that at the time. I wonder what yeah. the next iteration of that will be, for sure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I think... You know, the art of playing because my son plays, but I but I remember my brother playing guitar, and it's just different. My brother would stay up for hours till three o'clock in the morning, and you'd hear he'd have his headphones on because he'd be playing through the headphone. And I would walk by his room to go to the bathroom, and I could hear the strings playing. You know, I could hear the strings. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think I'm, I could be wrong, but there's kids today that just play for an hour hour or two and then they go play video games i just think there's more to distract kids from mastering their craft than years before 
Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's a lack of emphasis on mastering something. That that's just in general too. Um, mm-hmm. That that's with adults too. There's just so much to distract everybody. Putting in the you know the proverbial ten thousand hours. It was just easier to do when there was less shit going on. I mean right. that's that's absolutely the case. And, and it's so easy to. Um, there's so many shortcuts now with like the way you can record music, the way you can fix things, and you can beat detective a loop. You can snap everything to a grid. You don't even have to play it in time. You can auto tune your vocal a little bit. You can pull samples of other. You don't even have to play guitar. You know, like I remember seeing Dead Mouse's uh, his master class on YouTube. He's a you know a Skrillex type sort of crazy DJ guy, and he was like, I don't even know how to play music. I just press buttons and. I'm like, man, that's that's a shame. <laughs> that's, that you weren't, no one was getting away with that shit in the '70s, you know. And again, right. I hate I hate to dip into the get off my lawn stuff, but dude, in the '60s and '70s, in my opinion, the '70s was just the heyday of of music, and uh, you had to just really be able to do it and do it live. You had to really be able to record. There was just no hiding behind anything, so you had to put that time in to really master what you were doing, and that's that feels a little bit gone. I agree. I agree. Well, we could talk for hours about the future of rock and and, and what it means and where it's going and, and all the ins and outs of it, but um, it was a great conversation, Clint. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Once again, everybody, Clint Wells from Metal Up Your Podcast. You can find it on metalupyourpodcast.com. Great podcast, very Metallica-driven but very informative, very good discussions. I hope you all enjoyed this discussion. I know I did. Once again, I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. We'll chat again soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.